God's Word outlines for us the way the church should structure and govern itself. The sheep are cared for and stable to the degree that churches submit to the leadership of Christ in these things. And so the heart of God for His people is being revealed in these instructions. The sufficiency of Christ is so important to us that we're meant to be reminded of it even in the way our church governs itself. That wasn't something that we were meant to create. It is something created by and given to us, designed for us by Jesus himself. Jesus has described the kind of men that should have oversight in the church as shepherds of the flock. These are the elders, the Bible calls them, the pastors. But the New Testament prescribes two offices within each local church, elders and deacons. The elders are not deacons, and the deacons are not elders. So we not only need to know what the deacons are and have been called to be, we also need to know the purposes of these two offices in the church and how they work together for the overall care of God's people. The word deacon is used very often in the New Testament, but it's only described as an actual office in the church here in 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1, 1. The beginning of what uh, would become the church office of deacon is found at the beginning of the church itself in Acts chapter 6. And need arose that threatened to pull those charged with the ministry of the word and prayer away from those things. It was interrupting their ability to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. And so instructions were given for a distribution of the work that would ensure the ongoing and proper care of those in the church. When we ignore or blur the responsibilities of either of these offices, if we neglect either one of them, the church will be injured. And what Jesus has provided for us, what he has designed for us to know and to see and have before us all the time, gets obscured. Jesus has structured his church with both elders and deacons, so that the spiritual and physical needs of his people would be supplied as they endure the life of faith together. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, thank you for giving us this time together. I thank you for everyone that's here. God, I ask you that for your great name, for your Son and his glory and his gospel, you would make me speak clearly and truly and correctly And please watch over everyone and enable them to hear and to believe your word. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There are foundations in the word of God for the office of deacon. The word deacon, diakonos in the New Testament, means servant or attendant. It's a person who cares for others. It is generally translated servant, except in the few places where it refers specifically to this Office of deacon, which again is here in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, also in Philippians 1.1, possibly in Romans 16.1. What it primarily refers to is menial tasks like waiting on tables. It's the word used of Martha when she served Jesus in John 12. It's used that way again in Luke 17 and Luke 22. This is the word that Jesus used to convey his heart in the gospel, the very purpose of his life on the earth and what he came to do and the heart he desired for his people to have for each other. Listen to Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and 45. Let me read this to you. Hear Jesus speaking. 
But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Deacon, that's the word. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, to deacon, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. That's what the text says in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. When Jesus washed the feet of his disciples in verse 27, he asked for who is the greater One who reclines at table or one who serves? Deacons. Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among as the one who serves, who deacons? So the word deacon, again, came to represent all kinds of acts of service or the attitude of service in the cause of the gospel. Apostles were designated as servants of Christ, deacons. In that regard, Timothy is described in 1 Timothy 4, 6 as a good servant, a good deacon. Of Christ Jesus. So the word has both a general meaning that applies to all Christians as servants of one another and of Christ, but also has a specific meaning when it's used of this office created to more formally, if you will, serve the various needs of God's people within the church. What's tragic is how often this office can be misused or abused when the intention of Christ, the Spirit of Christ in giving it is so beneficial for us. If I say things about the office of deacon this morning that are corrective or critical, I want you to know I'm not in a backward way scolding our deacons. That's not what I'm doing. If I had something that I felt needed to be said to those men, I would say it to them privately, not like this. So this is not a personal attack in any way against any of those men. I am very thankful for, I think, very highly of our deacons here. I genuinely believe that um, most of the issues with the diaconate that are in churches are really due more than anything to church tradition. Men just doing what they've been told a deacon should do, what they've seen deacons do before them. I think it's more that than it is that men who are deacons are just selfish and self-serving or something. That Now that could be the case. That could be the case with any leader, including me. That that could be my heart, my attitude. But my assumption is more when there are issues in this, that it's because of an ongoing issue in any church, because the office is not being biblically guided. And normally, we're hearing deacon in a context where there are no elders. Normally, we hear deacon as a part of a church structure that is, again, pastor, deacons, committees, boards, congregation, those sorts of things. And so, the idea of what a deacon is, or the image of what a deacon is, is misunderstood sometimes in a whole church. And so, that's where a lot of those Issues can come from. I have a great relationship with our deacons. I don't know any of them to be selfish, power-hungry men. Not one of them. Too much is required of deacons normally in churches. I think too much is heaped onto them. The office can be misunderstood. And for some reason, this is often the case in Baptist churches. I say that as a Baptist, so don't get mad. Alright, but I mean often it's the case in Baptist churches for some reason. There's some history there, there's some reasoning there, but that's kind of boring. But deacons have often become in a church the seat of power really, and of influence and authority. So let's see if God's word shows us a better way, a better understanding. That's when we'll look to First Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 through 13. Actually, let me say this first. 
Jesus' demonstration of what is required of a deacon was given when he washed the feet of his disciples. When deacons stray from that posture before God's people, on their knees, washing their feet, they've strayed from the purpose of Christ for the office itself. The office of deacon is not a place of authority in the church. Authority is never associated with the office of deacon. If deacons have authority in the church, it's the authority to serve given to them by the elders so that the elders will be free to focus on their official purpose and task in the church. The office of deacon is not a ceremonial one, right? It's not like a rite of passage. Uh, It's not given so that someone would merely have the formal responsibility of serving the Lord's Supper. The deacons can do that. That's fine. It's not sinful or wrong. But that's not mainly what is meant when we talk about a deacon serving tables. It's really much more than that. The deacons then, as we read, also need to know, like the elders, the heart of Christ for his people, since that is what is being displayed in the qualifications and the purpose of that office also. Now let me read verses 8 through 13 of 1 Timothy 3. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The office of deacon is a bit strange because... Um, we're given the qualifications of the office here, but no explicit job description is ever given. Synagogues had deacons, a, a man they called the Chazen, or men they called the Chazen. But the only text we have to give us an overall sense of what a deacon should be doing is the one I mentioned earlier in Acts chapter 6. Let me read verses 1 through 7 of Acts 6. This is when it began. Now in these days, the days of the beginning of the church, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jewish people, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they, the apostles, prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. See how this benefits the church? And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Again, this seems to be the beginning of the office of deacon, the giving of an official task to certain men within the church. And they were to be, even from the beginning, a certain kind of man, mainly those who had a good reputation and were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, chosen by the people, but that the apostles would then appoint to the duty, meaning that the actual appointment of a man to the office rested in the hands of the apostles, those who were charged with 
the ministry of the word and prayer, not the congregation. The congregation brought forward the names they thought met the qualifications. Whether or not a man was appointed was up to those who were tasked with the ministry of the word and prayer. And the apostles here are the ones who would later pass on that role and responsibilities throughout Acts as the church grew um, to the elders in each of the churches. But the word deacon also came to describe from this moment on an office within the church whose task it was to make sure that things like a daily distribution of food the church had been providing each day did not overlook anyone that was a part of the church. So the spirit of the office is servant. It's provision. It's an extension of the whole church's call to care for its members. And we'll see that expressed even more later in our study of First Timothy as it relates specifically to widows. Uh, when it came, when we come to these verses in First Timothy, Paul is now reiterating, he's clarifying the qualifications of these men. Deacons are not required, as the elders are, to be able to teach, because the ministry of the word and prayer are not their formal responsibilities. But their position is like that of the elders, and that it requires, or what it requires of the men who hold it. They must be, in verse 8, dignified. In short, they need to be respectable men. And that means being recognized mainly by what they aren't, right? They're dignified. They're not double-tongued. So they're not the kind of men that say one thing to one man and a different thing to the next. They can be trusted. They aren't playing games for power or for, for position. They don't have loose lips when it comes to deacon meetings and what is said afterwards. They can be trusted. They're not... Uh, the kind of man Will Rogers said was, uh, they are the kind of man Will Rogers said was not afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. That's the kind of man a deacon is. He can be trusted. Again, I want to stress that he's respectable because he's credible and truthful. When you're in a position in the church to hear about and know the various needs of all the people within your church, it's vital that you aren't a man with loose lips. It is vital. There are some things and needs that people do not want everybody to know. And so that's extremely important for a deacon. He's also not addicted to much wine or greedy for dishonest gain. He isn't a drunk when it comes to wine or money. Those things make for a man who isn't worthy of other people's respect. The deacon is a man of character. And again, They aren't required to be able to teach, but, the text says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience in verse 9. A mystery in the epistles is mainly something hidden before Christ came that he revealed through his life and death, resurrection and ascension. The mystery here is the mystery of the cross, the gospel. Deacons must understand How God forgives sins, how people are made right with God. Again, this isn't a political position to hold. It's not a place of pageantry. The purpose is to convey the servant heart of the great servant, Jesus Christ, to the church. This is a gospel issue. Everything is. And he must hold to that mystery with a clear conscience. Which here immediately means he wasn't a man who was in league with these false teachers. He didn't have to hide what he believed. It wasn't tainted. In other words, he is not tainted by false doctrine. So there is a Bible awareness requirement necessary to hold the office of deacon. 
which means Jesus Christ doesn't even want tables waited on in the church if the waiter isn't convinced of his own desperate need for the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ to do it all. Think about it. Those deacons back in Acts 6, namely Stephen and Philip, they were primarily evangelists. Right? You get the story. We know the story of Stephen and Philip. We know what kind of men those were. That's not a coincidence that after we read about them being deacons, we see Stephen testifying before the crowd, being martyred for his faith, and Philip witnessing to an Ethiopian eunuch and baptizing him in the wilderness and bringing him into the church. There's a reason for that. That's really the heart of a deacon personified. That's the fullest expression of a deacon's heart in serving the people, serving them with what they need the most, the gospel, evangelism. They do that in how they serve. That's what they look like, ideally. Deacons in verse 10 must also, he says, be tested first. We didn't see that with the elders, but that is not because the elders don't have to be tested to meet the qualifications. What this implies is that everyone already knows about the test for elders, right? That's why he uses that word also when a test wasn't even mentioned in verses 1 through 7. Why would you need also? Because it's there. And here... This actually doesn't refer to a formal testing, really, or a questionnaire or something, although there may come a time, be a place for that, that's fine. This refers to the fact that the deacon needs to be tested over time as a member of the congregation before he can hold this office. We need to be able to answer the question, is this man a servant of other people in a way that can be seen and proven over time. Remember Acts 6, he must be a man of good repute. Related to what, right? Being a deacon is about washing feet and waiting on tables. It's not about clout, right? It doesn't puff a man up. The church needs to know a man is like this, that he washes feet, that he waits on tables, and is willing to do those things before he should ever be able to hold the office of deacon. This is a reference to his reputation over time before his name is submitted, if he proves himself blameless in that regard. The question for us as a church is, is that how we choose our deacons? Is that what we're looking for when it comes time for a person to be a deacon? Or is it, as it is so often across the church at large, is it um, the names we can think of? based upon who's been there the longest. Uh, what's his last name, right? It, it's, it's, when I was uh, my first pastorate, I got there on a Sunday in November. The first business meeting was that Wednesday. And at that business meeting, they were supposed to present the names for the coming period for deacons. The first deacons meeting I ever had was the first night, my first Sunday ever as a pastor. And we got into the deacons meeting and it was brought up that, well, you know, these are the five or six guys we're going to bring up. And I said, okay, just as a, because of, because of this text, I said, have they been tested? And I really didn't even know what that meant other than I know they were supposed to be tested, right? I was waiting to see like, what is the, what is the process here for testing? And the other deacons were like, I, I mean, I, I, we th- I think they're good guys. And so I said, well, maybe we should wait a month. And have another meeting after we've been able to talk to these guys and make sure they're qualified. And they thought, they were like, okay, great. That Wednesday, the business meeting, it comes time to present those names. I'm moderating the business meeting, which is, was the pastor's job there. I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to wait a month so that we can test these men. Everybody there had been so nice to me until that moment. And my wife is sitting right here. She's looking at me. And out of the back of the sanctuary, I hear, 
faithful in all things. There is evidence. We know this. I, I think most of us do that an uh, order of female deacons did develop in the church over time. I don't think the Bible forbids female deacons. Um, the women in a church tend to do more of a deacon's tasks anyways, if you want to get technical about it. Um, when there are tables to be waited on or serving, it's usually women that do it, right? Let's be honest. So maybe Paul was writing that, that right, that they're women, because you can use that word that way where you see wife here, meaning the female deacons have to be this, but that's unlikely in context. It doesn't work to put that here uh, because deacons are on the both sides of verse 11, right? For example, when you go down to verse 12, and you, if you, and let verse 10, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Then you have in verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. The middle of that is talking about the deacon still, right? So, it's unlikely that it's women here, given the fact that deacons are the focus on both sides of verse 11. Then go back, if you would, for a moment to chapter 2, verse 12. You read, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This qualification for deacon here does not contradict that, so women can be deacons precisely because the office of deacon is not an office of authority over anyone. So often in churches, the reason women are pushed aside and not allowed to be deacons is because there's an unbiblical view of deacons as though they are kind of the elders, right? And so we, we kind of mix all this together and have this composite office that doesn't really exist, and so we think, well, women can't be that. They can be that they can serve. However, this passage is talking about the wives of deacons, right? The wife of a deacon. This text is saying that a deacon's wife must also qualify. So if a man is up for the office of deacon, his wife will have to be qualified also. Or she can disqualify a man from the office. She has a respectability. Notice it's the same, dignified, that matches his. That means the wife of a deacon can't be the church gossip or a church gossip. She, she can't be the woman known for doing this all the time. Well, I heard that uh, it was really like this and then this and then. And then when you see them, they're always doing. Right, that, that's, 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 no. She disqualifies her husband from the office. Few things are more dangerous and hurtful to a church than a wife who murmurs and gossips when her husband holds a position of influence. This is very dangerous. And I know it seems like I'm picking on the ladies. I'm not. We're we're, we're talking relative to the text. Men have a slew of their own issues that are mainly unique to them. This one is talking about how the wife of a deacon may not conduct herself. It means the wife of a deacon, if a man is fit for the office would have the same heart for that ministry that her husband does. That's really what it's driving out here. Verse 12 follows that idea on purpose, right? It's obvious that verse 12 would fall right out of verse 11, which is one of the ways we know we're talking about the deacon's wife. That woman is the only woman in the deacon's life if he's married, physically and emotionally. He also, like the elder, has a well-ran household. Again, beloved. Church structure is for the care of God's people, not the exaltation of men. That's not what it's for. Do we even ask these things? Do we check these things, right, when we're looking for 
men to be deacons. We don't know if a man can be a deacon until we've spoken to his wife and kids if he's married and or has children. That's always of the utmost importance. Because in verse 13, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's recalling that same idea from verse 1 of chapter 3 and how the office of deacon is also a good office and should not be downplayed or disgraced. Think about it. We deeply respect and are pulled towards people who care for us, who show it constantly. They have a good standing with us. It's very natural, right? And we'll have that same standing as a part of the church as well when they're like this. When men hold this office, but hold it for some other reason than the ongoing and legitimate care of people's physical needs, they will not have a good standing in the congregation. But ideally, they will. right? Sometimes, and again, there are going to be periods in the life of a church where, especially if you just have the single pastor deacon model, where the deacons will have to take on the role of elders because... Who else can do it, right? Or what else can be done? Somebody's going to have to help guide the church in the absence of a pastor, which would be another reason why a plural eldership would be so beneficial to a church. Then we're not requiring too much of the deacons. They don't have to do things the Bible never called them to do, make decisions they never really signed on to make, right? And so that can happen. That's not a sin when that happens. Deacons aren't being selfish or self-serving when that happens. That Again, that's always an issue in the heart of an elder or a deacon. They can always be selfish and self-serving. The office biblically is not. And so sometimes uh, deacons will be in positions where they have to do more really than they're required to do. And as servants, they're generally willing to do that. But ideally, the church is never left out in the cold because one person is missing. Right, beloved, Jesus did this for you. Right? This is for us. This is for the church. So that we're okay no matter what's happening. This office can only be held faithfully as a man presses into Christ to know him more. It's the only way you can meet such things and do such things. Serving as a deacon is not to gain salvation. It's not a way to get saved. But it's set up to be an extension of salvation to others, of what Christ has done for me, extended to the congregation, right? And so to do so, to live like that is also to gain confidence that one belongs to Jesus, which is very interesting. That's what happens when you care for the sheep. You grow in confidence about your standing as a sheep, right? It's just the way it works. It's a beautiful system. Elders and deacons. These are the two offices given to govern the church of Jesus Christ. In one way or another, what the leadership is in a church, the church will become, right? That's just the way things tend to work in the world. Therefore, we as the church have to pray that God will raise up leaders after his own heart, beloved. This is what we should desire for our church. This, what the Bible prescribes, nothing else. All our own preferences and demands must be submitted to that which Christ requires and finds necessary. There's no better way, there's really no other way biblically to govern a church than this way. Elders, a group of qualified men who hunger for God and and the truth of Jesus Christ, who have the authority of oversight for the whole church, leading her. 
by the ministry of the word and prayer, making sure that nothing the church does or believes compromises the truth of the gospel, and at the same time, deacons, qualified men, serving under the leadership of the elders as those who plan and work to meet the physical needs of the congregation. When these two offices in a church are biblically clear, biblically defined, biblically practiced, then the church can faithfully submit to that which these letters in God's word call us. Then the lampstand doesn't go out in a church. This is the way God has prescribed. This is what the great shepherd of the sheep desires for his flock. These two work together for the benefit of the church. That's the way to structure a church. So what is the place of things like boards and committees? Are they now sinful? No. Are they necessary? That's a different question. Are they necessary? If they serve with clear direction from the elders and in cooperation with the deacons as needed to make sure that they only exist to help keep things organized and running well for the sake of the body, it may make sense then, and does often make sense, to create or to have committees or boards that can facilitate faithfulness to those tasks But no group takes the place or performs the function of the offices God has prescribed. In other words, we should never put authority in the church of Jesus Christ somewhere that Jesus Christ himself never put it. That's what's important to remember. Authority in the church doesn't rest finally in the deacons. It doesn't rest in the trustees. It doesn't rest in committees or wealthy people. It doesn't rest in a majority of people who manage to show up at a given business meeting, right? The heart of Christ in the gospel will not be revealed or communicated clearly enough in things he has not prescribed, which was the whole reason for him prescribing them in the first place. If those other things do exist, they exist to help serve the purpose of the church, not to become the purpose or the structure of the church. Then you have, if if, if that's done unbiblically, you just have numerous groups of people with their own agenda doing all they can to advance it all the time. And it just makes for constant conflict and friction. The church is not meant to be a burden on everybody. It's not meant to be a place you dread coming and dread being a part of that gets siphoned off into sections. You hear so many times from people, yeah, I don't want anything to do with the politics in the church. Why are they there? What purpose are they serving? How have they become their own category that some people take part in and some people don't? What happened here? Right? Why is there this divide so often amongst us as a part of the body of Christ. This way, the way God has given, makes the church run in harmony. Right? There are less meetings, less bureaucracy. That makes for less arguing, less fighting, less gossip, less frustration, less strategizing and plotting behind closed doors at the expense of those for whom Christ died. Our way, not their way. This is given so that all that is cut out of the body. Those are tumors. Tumors kill people. They destroy bodies. Jesus didn't leave us to ourselves. If he would have, we have the mess we often create. We don't need to have that mess. We need to submit 
to Jesus who cares for us, who is Lord over us. Less division, beloved, less division. Right? The church can so quickly become all about who's in charge, who's running the show. Do we realize that the body of Christ, there is no purpose to us existing if the gospel isn't going out from us in mass. Right? What, have another club. Right? If that's the heart. If that's the heart, have another place to get together and be friends. But don't let it be in the name of Christ. His mission, His heart here. When do these qualifications come in Scripture? When God has revealed His heart for what the church is in chapter 2. That's not a coincidence, beloved. This structure aligns itself with the heart of God to save all kinds of people and to see them come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the way. This is the way. Cut all of that stuff off of the knees if you can. Don't give it a chance to fester if you don't have to. The elders are focused on the truth that helps stop these tumors from forming, helps stop these roots of bitterness from springing up, while the deacons at the same time are free to serve and meet the needs of people without a book of red tape, so no one falls through the cracks. There are normally reasons that's happening if it's happening. So we need enough of both men in those two groups. We need enough elders. We need enough deacons. Jesus gave us the way to run like a well-oiled machine as the church of Jesus Christ. And we hijack it so often to serve our own interests by rejecting that way. The elders need to be able to focus mainly on disciple-making, spiritual leadership and oversight. Right? If, if elders are those who are in the office of elder, functioning as elders, even if that's not what we call them, if they get bogged down with administration and all those things, it's the flock that will suffer from that. And look, just, I'm not personally trying to get around any of my responsibilities. Okay? I get paid. I need to be here. Right? So I'm not pleased. The lion's share of it falls on me as the one who handles the ministry of the word and prayer mainly. So the lion's share of responsibility, when it's good or bad, falls on me. That won't change. That can't change, right? So I don't want you to think I'm trying to get around something. I I just want you to know that if what is required of me is outside the realm of how the Bible describes eldership, I don't know of how much use I can be to you. I'm not an administrator. I'm not a CEO. I don't have a dynamic, electric, attractive personality. It's okay. I know it. Right? I, I, I'm weird. I get it. If the more you're around me alone, you walk away thinking, that guy is really weird. I totally, I don't, it is what it is, right? We kind of are who we are by 30. You're not really changing. Okay? I got married when I was 27. I'm so glad I didn't meet her when I was 30. Because I don't know if she would have had the same feelings. But that's okay. I'm, I'm kidding. We're in love. It's, it's a joke. Um, Jesus didn't set up the church to be a hive of activity, right? This this isn't set up for that. It's, it's not really meant to be a hive of busyness. The more things that we create, which we always do this, we need this, we need this, we need this, we need this, and we just keep adding and stacking things onto, right? And we think that's growth. That's not growth, right? It, it's it's if, if you put a third prosthetic arm on me, 
my body's not growing. It's mutated. Right? It, it, growth would be another person. Right? My family grew when my wife and I had children. Not if we added on to our assets or our house. Right? So that, that's the way the church grows. So the more things we create, the more we find ourselves in places where God has given us no prescriptions or qualifications for. So in other words, we have things that we can't biblically quantify. So we're just making up things. Then we're flying blind often in a house of our own making rather than fixed on Christ in the house that Jesus is building. Right? So we start to build. We aren't the builders here. Christ will build his church. We are called to be faithful, to steward that which has been given, not to make up more to help it grow. There's a distribution. God gave us two offices in the church, not one. Right? So there's a distribution of responsibilities. Think of the benefits then of eldership. Yes, there can certainly be problems. Absolutely. Anytime you have men, there will be problems. And the transition could take or would take a lot of time. But beloved, at the end of the day, this is the better way. Whether it's the direction we ultimately go or not structurally, it is the better way. It is the biblical way. That can't be denied. If you disagreed with plural eldership as the way to govern the church, the burden of proof is on you. Because that's what the Bible teaches. There's, there's not another way. So, eldership means the saints are served by more than one pastor at a time. When everything is required of one man, right? When one man's time is demanded to oversee, to manage, to make everything run efficiently and at the same time meet every individual person's needs, whether they're real or imagined, not only is that man going to get burned out, not only is he being required to act often way outside of his gift set, it's the church that is continually frustrated and underserved because it's not good for a man to be alone. It never has been. The only man able to carry the weight of the church on his back is Jesus. So elders and deacons are not the Savior. They won't save the church. They won't make all the problems go away. But they will point to the one who is the Savior of the church more than they do anything else. And they can point a lot better to him and a lot more often when a church is structured in the way that God has prescribed. Eldership is plural, biblically. It's more than one man. right? And again, the responsibilities are distributed. right? So it's, it's not like you have... Seven full-time pastors on staff. That's not the way eldership works unless your church is, you know, 20,000 people or something. We're not quite there yet. Right? And that's fine. That's fine. I, I love what we have. But everything the sheep need cannot be provided for them by one man. That's what Jesus is telling us in this passage. A group of men not only has a distributed amount of time and ability to serve the body... They also have a variance of gifts and strengths that better serve the body, whose strengths help make up for each other's weaknesses, because those will be there too. You see that Jesus is trying to take care of us in this. Spread out the authority and pastoring in the church across a group of qualified, uniquely gifted men who are able to shepherd the flock. And then don't require of the deacons what should only be required of the elders, and vice versa. Understand that the tasks of elders vary, right? A man more gifted in administration oversees the administrative issues in the church. A man more gifted in service 
oversees the deacons, the physical needs of the church. A man more gifted to labor in preaching and teaching oversees the preaching ministry of the church, sets the tone and direction of the church by the biblical principle of first among equals in eldership, so that way eldership never becomes static, never becomes frozen, and on and on it goes. Rather than demanding that one man be all of that and harm ourselves over the years because we're trying to force out of him things he doesn't have, all this works in concert Jesus deeply cares about the pastor's wife and children, so he set it up in a way that they won't be jilted. Right? You see how all this is, is meant to work together? Right? Even the distribution of time and tasks among these offices. Jesus hasn't left us in the cold, beloved. He deeply cares for us and our everyday lives, including the way we've set up our church because it's people. All, you, we can talk all the structure and business and all those things all day. And there is a place for all of those things. But at the end of the day, in the beginning of the day, and during the day, it's people. It's all people. There are faces attached to needs. Jesus means to serve us by giving us a group of men who share in all these tasks for the body. Beloved, just imagine it. The ministry of the word and prayer in a church as the primary focus of a group of qualified men called elders. The ministry of service and meeting the needs of those in the church running alongside them as the primary focus of a group of men called deacons. Two groups of qualified men who do both hold to the mystery of this great faith with a clear conscience for the temporal and eternal good of our souls. That is the way. that No wonder... The writer of Hebrews could say of the elders in 13.17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why would I do that? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The whole purpose of this is your advantage. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood, Paul, in Acts 20, 28. The elders are God's stewards for your faith and joy. The deacons are God's stewards for the everyday care of your lives, beloved. This is the way. The heart of God for his people has been revealed even in the way churches are called to structure and govern themselves. This, we're moving on next week in First Timothy. This hasn't been an exhaustive study of this topic. We haven't covered everything or answered every question. What I've tried to do is cover kind of the main issue, the essence of these things. There are more details given in the particulars as we go throughout the pastoral letters. But this morning, try if you can to reflect on what these texts say Overall about the topic of church structure and government. Who would have ever thought that was this important? But Jesus is the power and the wisdom of God. Beloved, of course he has thought about all the details of the church. God set his affections on you before you were even born. He made you his own. He purchased you with his son's blood. He predestined you for glory. And according to Romans 8, 28 through 30, all who believe will obtain that glory. This 
is part of the means by which he will bring each of us finally to himself. The care of our souls and our bodies here in the in-between by faithful elders and deacons. Jesus has structured his church with both elders and deacons so that the spiritual and physical needs of his people would be supplied as they endure the life of faith together. Beloved, Jesus Christ lived the perfectly righteous life of obedience to Almighty God for us. He then offered up this perfect life freely to God as an offering so that all who believe would not only be forgiven of all of their sins, but also be made perfectly righteous by His righteousness so that we are both pure, washed clean, and holy, righteous before the Father. Jesus did all of that for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He rose again to apply all of that to our account and ascended back to his Father where he now lives to make intercession for those he has saved and means to save. The church exists now to make all of that known to the world. That Jesus Christ has lived and died and risen to save sinners. This is the structure that not only reveals that and reflects that about Jesus and His Father through the Spirit, but is best set up to help us proclaim that faithfully and consistently about Jesus. No man is fit on his own for these tasks. No man is fit on his own. No man is fit in a group for these tasks. The first thing learning these qualifications should do is send a church's pastor or pastors and deacons to their knees because I guarantee you, as we've read them, we in those offices have been undone by them in one way or another. We don't have this in us. Nobody that will hold these offices in the future has these things in them naturally. These aren't talents. These are gifts of the Spirit. If we are to be what we're required to be, and and when we fail you, because we will, when we fail you, when we don't meet our obligations and responsibilities, I'm asking you, Before you get angry with us, pray for us. Something is off in us. I'm telling you, I know I sit in a room or before all this nonsense happened with our deacons. We don't have other elders right now, but we have deacons. I know what these men want to be and to do for you. So if you perceive that's not happening, I'm not trying to get anybody off the hook. I'm saying, pray for us. This... Virus has left most pa- pastors I know that are my buddies. We don't know what to do. We, we, who do we listen to? Do we do what the state says? Do we not? Do we, what does the future look like? Do we start this thing? Do we put an end? Uh, it's just, it's just a constant kind of, and again, I don't want, I don't want you to feel sorry for us. I'm not out in the workforce like most of you are. It's much harder on you than it is on me. I understand that. I don't deny that. I'm saying for what we're required to do, pray for us. Please, we don't want to fail you. We don't want to fail you. If we are to be what we're required to be, it will be an ongoing, 
daily gift of pure grace to us. If Paul had to ask, who is sufficient for these things? You can bet I and we do. Who is sufficient to be ministers of such matters as the gospel? My goodness. I mean, is, is, are we the last days on earth? Is this it? Will Christ return? Will we see him split the sky in our lifetimes? Then let us be ready men. If we're the last group before the end, God make us ready. Make your church ready. Right? If, if they come for us, will we stand? Will we not compromise? Will we not give in? Will we not deny our Christ? We'll need grace to not do that, beloved. And we'll need to be together. No pettiness, no fighting, no murmuring, no complaining. We see each other to the end, and we cross over to the other side and hug each other when we get there. Together. That's what we do. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We're not anything else. And if that will be me, it will be pure grace. Because that is not in this flesh. It's not there. I live because Christ lives within me. So to the whole church, let me say, in all these things, whether it's this or anything else, trust in Jesus. Trust in his word. Come sinners, me included, poor and needy, no matter who you are, and find rest for your souls in Him. If you're here this morning, or you're watching this, and you don't know Jesus Christ, you must repent of your sins, and believe on Him, and you will be saved. And if you do not do this, you will be condemned. He is the truth. He is why we're here. He is why we exist. He is not only our Lord. He is our Savior and our Shepherd and has given us the way to peace and rest if we will listen. Not just as people, but as His church. I love you. I love this church. Let's pray. Father, for the time you have allowed us to meet freely without threat, we give you thanks. We give you thanks. It's by your sovereign hand that that's the case. Many of our brothers and sisters, even now in America, we shudder to say, don't have that privilege this morning. So, Father, we ask for your mercy here and across the open lands and waters of this nation. We ask you not to abandon us. We ask you not to turn us over. But, Father, whatever comes, you will not leave or forsake us. God, watch over your people as they go. Watch over them this week. Watch over their families. All the requests that we have, the physical, spiritual needs that we have in our church, Father, we ask that you administer that you would come close and be near to us. We ask that you would keep us from sin and sinfulness. We ask that your grace would wash over us in waves when we transgress. Father, I pray that we would honor you as holy, 
Your son is the Lord of this church, and one another is sheep of the great shepherd. Watch over Moundsville, watch over Glendale, watch over Benwood and Mackin and Washington Lands and Glen Easton and Cameron and Wheeling and Triadelphia and Weirton and New Martinsville and just it goes on and on. But Father, you are there. So be God everywhere. Be God at Moundsville Baptist Church. I ask and pray for these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will never forsake us or forget us. Amen.